Welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Neil Walden. Uh, Neil started as a military pilot and embarked on a new career in entrepreneurship and real estate. Neil knows how it feels to step out of your comfort zone, and Neil is not your typical real estate investor either. Neil specializes in industrial real estate and sale lease-back transactions. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. Neil will tell us all about it. So, Neil, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me on, Eric. So, yeah, let's let's start with that. I mean, just, just uh, obviously military background and, um, you know, process, procedures, things are kind of, you know, this, uh, you have to do things and all of that, but you, you're kind of, you're, in a way, you, you, you're, timeline in your career is defined and then you decide to kind of like leave that behind and say okay <laughs> now i'm gonna go into something completely different which is real estate and on top of that you pick something that's unusual which is industrial real estate so how do you um how do you do that how do you make that transition how, and help other, our listeners kind of like understand how do you get out of your comfort zone and kind of like expand your reach yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, I think just to set a little background. So I was a, a military pilot for about 10 years. Um, you know, about eight of those were full-time with the U.S. Air Force and then transitioned over, uh, flew part-time for a couple of years with the Navy Reserve. And kind of in that that process, I you know, I found for me, it was a combination of education really helped you know, really starting to, before I took the jump out of being a pilot to start educating and, you know, kind of testing the waters to see, you know, kind of see, see what the market, uh, how the market responded. And was I, you know, there, there was some anxiety and, and, you know, to be honest, some fear early on, you know, I knew, I knew one world very well. I knew how to fly yeah. a plane and I, I knew how to be an aviator. And in that, kind of structured military world and the idea of a what does the outside look like whether that's flying for delta or united or or b even a bigger jump what does a world not being in aviation look like and yeah. you know i think i really a lot had to do with you know reading a lot of books with talking to you know peers of mine that had not only left the military but had left aviation completely and and really you know, kind of hearing their stories and, and seeing, Hey, you know what, like, these are smart guys. I, I knew they were great pilots when we flew together and here they've come out on the other side with some completely different career that, you know, ultimately very successful in, in their own right. And I think seeing those, you know, kind of peer references was, you know, kind of led a, a you know, I think that was kind of the the inertia, the catalyst that I needed to make that jump myself. And ultimately I was very glad I did. Yeah. So I think, and this is, uh, this is true. I think education is definitely something that uh, that's important. Obviously. I mean, when you, you start, you don't go and they don't throw you on a plane right away. I'm <laughs> assuming. Uh, so you, you do a lot of training and there's a lot of training in order to get, get behind a plane or helicopter and stuff like that. And, so that training is there to prepare you. Same thing with real estate. Sounds like you read tons of uh, tons of book and also talk to other people to figure out, like, you know, this is this the right space for me? How do I get in to that particular uh, type of investment and all that? Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was actually on a 
so somewhere at autopilot, 30,000 feet over the water on a way on a trip to Guam. And my, my navigator, uh, who was a little older than me at the time, handed me rich dad, poor dad. He's like, Hey, I, I just finished this thing. And you know, you got time to kill up there. And he's like, I think you should read this. And, uh, and I actually read the first chapter, you know, while sitting in the, in the seat there. And, um, yeah, it was, it really, it was just, I mean, all these, you know, fresh ideas started firing off and I, you know, I got home and probably within 48 hours had finished the book. And, you know, really that was kind of my, my catalytic moment of going, oh my gosh, you know, if I stay on this track, my, my well-being, my income is perpetually tied with my time in a cockpit and my time away from home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I enjoy those things, I want the option to do them and not have to do them in order to, you know, effectively fund the lifestyle I want. And that, you know, reading that book and realizing how, you know, invested in equity, whether it be in a company or real estate or, you know, really ownership and creating that cash flow from that ownership where it works for you, whether you are or not. I mean, that was a really eye opening moment. Yeah. Uh, so, and you chose real estate. Um, so that's obviously rich dad, poor dad had something to do with that. Uh, but real estate is a pretty broad field. There's so many different <laughs> ways to make money in real estate. This is partially one of the reasons why people get lost uh, when they, uh, they're trying to they start with one strategy and then they flip to another one and they go somewhere else. And, you know, they never really have a good strategy, solid strategy in play. Uh, they just keep going from one shiny object to the next. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in your case, um, so how did you choose to uh, to invest and spend your uh, and use the industrial real estate uh, market as your kind of like your strategy for uh, for real estate investment? Yeah, you know, I had the opportunity prior to Mag Capital Partners, where I work now as a COO. Um, prior, I worked for a really in an in equity investment focused model commercial real estate firm. And what we did is we had relationships with a number of investors and we would partner with commercial brokers or developers who had a, a very uh, focused expertise on a certain asset type or a certain geography. And we would partner with them to be effectively the capital arm to bring in that investor equity to fund the projects and remain JV partners through, through the life of the deal. And that was kind of neat because I got to see, you know, really about seven or eight very, you know, uniquely different real estate asset types, everything mm-hmm. from multifamily to ground up, you know, housing developments, office, multi-tenant retail, industrial, even uh, senior assisted living. And I got to do, you know, a lot of comparative analysis and look under the hood on the underwriting and see the teams behind them. And, you know, really after a lot of that, I realized, you know, a lot of these deals are very difficult to project and then fulfill, you know, ultimately close to what you project for your business plan. There's just so many variables that come into play. And from the side of raising capital, you know, I found my best relationships came with investors when I could deliver very close to what, what I promised. And, you know, the closer those two dynamics are, you know, your projections in reality, the faster it is to build trust, the faster it is to really build strong relationships with your, your investor network. And I found single tenant net lease industrial really eliminates a huge amount of the operational risk of owning real estate. You take away almost all of the expense surprises that can come and, you know, kind of steamroll your, your investment 
And you're ultimately taking the responsibility of those surprises and putting them on your tenant. So your mm -hmm. tenants, they're taking any sort of tax change liability. They're taking any insurance premium increase liability. They pay all that directly. They pay their own utilities, even building upkeep and maintenance. So, you know, a mm -hmm. surprise roof replacement, uh, you know, new paint, HVAC going out, pavement repairs. All these are things that might not be budgeted, but in the industrial model, you don't need to budget for those based on the structure of the lease. The tenant handles all those surprise expenses themselves. So from an investor standpoint and a sponsor standpoint, we have a, a very reliable, predictable set of cash flow that we've structured contractually with the lease that we're able to perform very close to what we say we think we can do. So can you give us uh, some example of what a, a typical industrial real estate project looks like? Is this, uh, is this a factory? Is yeah. this uh, light industrial, heavy manufacturing? What, what, what are they? Yeah. So before we jump into that, it's helpful oh. maybe to, to know the different types of industrial. So you have, um, you know, the, the subspace that we play in is referred to as manufacturing slash warehouse. And that's typically... You know, you'll see them on the highway, sometimes in the middle of nowhere, four walls, a giant building could be, you know, half a million yeah. square feet. Uh, typically, I mean, they look like boxes out in the countryside. And that's, yeah. that's effectively what they are from the outside. And the value of this real estate really is in the unique relationship between the real estate and the tenant. And they're designed around very long-term tenancy, long-term leases. And ultimately, the, the value of that manufacturing and or storage operation that's happening there, that value of creation tied to the real estate is really what, what drives value to the real estate investors. Um, and so that's, that's going to be your primary form. Then you also mm -hmm. have a form of industrial called flex industrial. And that's yeah. imagine the long buildings kind of subdivided into you know, smaller, maybe 1,800 yeah, yeah. or 2,000 square foot spaces you know, truck bay doors, you know, usually a small shipping receiving, and that'll be a lot of smaller credit tenants, mom and pop companies that need a little extra storage, or maybe a tire shop or, a, you know, lawn and garden care storage facility, some mm -hmm. combination of that. And the dynamics of, of flex industrial, are, frankly, are going to be more similar to a multi-tenant retail space. Yeah. They're going to require, yeah. you know, faster turnover, property management, you know, similar to as if you own like a strip mall. Yeah. And then the third main category is going to be specialty industrial. And that's going to be, you know, everything from cold storage to, you know, uh, air particulate controlled, uh, you know, bio uh, pharma type of spaces, you know, making, making medicines, making chemicals, making, you know, really specialty equipment that requires really a, a custom layout or, or a higher degree of safety for the yeah. manufacturing mm -hmm. And those are going to be very specialized, kind of uniquely tailored pieces of real estate. Wow. And you focus on the manufacturing warehousing uh, space. And um, so but are you doing like value add on these projects or are you picking a, a piece of land and then you build to suit or you just or you buy the warehouse and then what do you do? What do you do after that to, yeah. to add value to that, that problem? Yeah, no, great question. So there's, there's a lot of different, you know, I would say niche business models. Uh, our particular model is we are buying fully occupied real estate and we are effectively looking for quality real estate generating predictable cash flow that's backed by strong private credit tenants. Um, mm -hmm. So typically these tenants are, 
you know, do over hundred million a year in revenues. However, most of them are privately held either directly or backed by private equity groups. And ultimately we come in, we structure um, typically what's called a sale lease back. So we, yeah. we typically will buy the real estate off of a private company who owns the building and operates within it. So they sell us the real estate and simultaneously turn around and sign a long-term, typically 20 year full triple net lease. Uh, and that the reason they do this is quite often tied with either an acquisition or a merger where one party is coming in, buying that company and laser focused on the operational component, less interested in owning basically, you know, lower performing assets like real estate. So they mm -hmm. will sell off the real estate through a sale leaseback to kind of shrink the size of that company acquisition, just yeah. so they can focus on the operational component and become a, a renter and keep that you know, balance sheet a little leaner for that acquiring company. And that's, that's a very common practice in that space. Yeah. Um, so that's, well, that's very interesting. So it's kind of like, uh, if you live in a house and you say, I, I own the house and I'm going to say, well, I'm, I, let me sell you my house. And I want to be a tenant for 10 years on that, on that house. I'll pay the upkeep. I'll pay the insurance and the utilities and all of that but I'll pay you rent on, uh, on a monthly basis. And the reason why I'm doing this is so that I can get a lump sum payment, uh, extract the equity so that I, because I know that I can, with my special skills, I can do something, uh, invest at a higher rate than, you know, just owning the property. hundred so percent. That's yeah. Yeah. And, and quite often they'll have corporate debt that, you know, will have maybe a five-year term it's coming due. And they can use a sale leaseback really as an alternative form of refinancing. So they yeah, may yeah, yeah. take some of those, they may reinvest in some capital improvements, may pay off some corporate debt that's coming due, just to, mm -hmm. as a way to balance their you know overall financial picture. Wow. So this is that's is very unique, uh, definitely a way of. Uh, this is not something that somebody can just jump in there and <laughs> uh, or can they. It's uh, what, what kind of, uh, if somebody's interested in investing in this space and they don't have uh, the, um, you know, what the, the understand the skill or the, the experience doing that, how do they, how do they start? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, two main ways. One is active investing where you are effectively managing, doing all this yourself. There's a lot of barriers to entry for the model. We do just a lot of intricacies with not only negotiating price, of the building, but you're also negotiating the terms of the lease that's being signed yeah. as well. Yeah. And then, you know, understanding how to analyze the credit. So a lot of pieces there that are difficult just to jump into, but um, you know, what a lot of our investor partners do is they take a, a passive investment position, you know, in a yeah. syndication form, similar to investing, you know, with a sponsor behind a, you know, multifamily project or commercial or development. And ultimately, will follow our lead. We are the manager uh, on that project, you know, for the four to five years, we intend to hold the real estate and, uh, you know, ultimately taking that passive investment position. Yeah. So one good thing is that you don't have to find a tenant. The tenant is already there. So that's, yeah. uh, so it's guaranteed. You just have to, obviously you have to be very numbers driven because like you mentioned, I mean, I have to negotiate the price and at the same time, I have to negotiate the lease and these mm -hmm. things need to generate a profit yeah. and uh, a certain return. So yeah. this is well, critical. You really look to line up purchase price and corresponding rent to generate yield. And what's mm -hmm. kind of neat about it is typically 
when you when you buy a, an occupied asset, you are kind of battling over the price, right? And there's yeah. some nuanced pieces, but ultimately both sides want, you know, the seller wants more proceeds, the, the yeah. buyer wants the, a lower price, right? Uh, and there, that really is, is the main, you know, lever to pull and push on. But the sale leaseback is a little interesting because you can say, hey, I will, I will pay more for this building, but correspondingly, I will lease it back to you at a higher price per square foot rental yeah. rate. Or, yeah. you know, if you want to, if you want to rent it at, at a lower rent rate, then that's fine, but I'm going to pay a lower price up front for it. So yeah. you can, you kind of, it's much more of a finesse negotiation where, yeah. you know, Really, in my opinion, I think there's a lot better alignment of interest between the seller who's staying with you, becoming your tenant, and of yeah. course the buyer who now is becoming the landlord. And so that both parties are incentivized to work, play a little nicer, you know, because you do, you have it's not just a one-time transaction. You know, you're gonna be yeah. together for the next, you know, five, 10, 20 years, even per the, the terms of the lease. So, you know, really it's much more of a symbiotic relationship in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it also depends on the, the driver, what's driving the sale for, uh, for the tenant, for the, the, current, uh, the current owner. Yeah. Right? Do they want to have more proceeds in order for them to reinvest in some, some equipment or something like that? Or mm -hmm. if it's part of a merger, I'm, get, I'm assuming they just want to get, they don't want to be in the real estate business. Yeah. They just want to have, uh, you know, get, get that out of their books so that they can have a, their, their operations basically at a low, uh, low rental cost. hundred percent. Different drivers. Yeah. What, one thing I, I like to compare to say like a multifamily project, right? Um, you know, a multifamily project, you're typically buying an underperforming asset, you know, something that you feel is mismanaged at some level. And the sponsor team, the management team there is, is buying the asset. Once they take ownership, then the real work begins, right? Then they are, working, they're doing improvements, uh, repositioning it, you know, putting new countertops, et cetera. And they think typically the business model will include some assumptions of increasing occupancy and increasing rents. Uh, industrial is a little different. It's much more of a defensive play because from day one, you have full occupancy, 100%. And you also, per the new lease you're putting in, will have built-in rent bumps. So you mm -hmm. know, as long as you don't mess anything up, this deal is fully occupied and the rents are going to go up automatically every year. The cash flow is, you know, typically much higher than, you know, what you might find in other market alternatives, especially from a day one asset. And really you are, your due diligence and the, and the risk on the deal is ensuring that it stays that way. So mm -hmm. because of that, you know, there's sometimes three, four five months of due diligence, credit analysis, interviews with the C-suite, with the CFOs of these selling companies really to understand the historical financial you know picture uh, we want to understand how the proceeds of the sale lease spec are going to be used you know where mm -hmm. are they going to reinvest the money that they're pulling out of the, the real estate and then we want to get a very clear picture of what you know the next 12 months look like the next five years look like and you know we look at all that and kind of make a educated decision on Given this, how comfortable are we that they will be able to, you know, very reliably pay their rent obligation? And, you know, when they stay in business, when they pay their rent, that means the deal goes off. I mean, literally to the penny, almost uh, the way you, the way you think it will be, because you've you've pre-negotiated and, and you've eliminated all the variability that we talked about before.
what kind of uh, what what are the sizes of these types of industrial uh, real estate deals out there? So what what can if somebody wants to come in as a as an active investor, can they find something that's uh, that's relatively inexpensive if they don't have to do too much of a big cash layout? Yeah, I mean you can if you want to be an individual investor, you can find industrial as small as you know ten thousand square feet, even a little little smaller standalone. Um, most will have triple net leases. The biggest risk you'll run into there is they're typically what we call stabilized deals, where it's, you know, you're buying the real estate with a separate independent tenant already in place. Um, typically, the lease terms are much smaller there. So you might have only three years left on the lease. So yeah. now, not only are you making a decision based on the creditworthiness of your tenant, you also have to do a lot more detailed analysis on what are the chances that they renew. You know, yeah. what are, what are their alternatives here? And then that becomes much more of a renewal play to say, yeah. you know, really, you know, the odds of us having to release this are much higher than, you know, in our deals, it's a 20 year term. We're only holding it for five. So the only real risk we have is a, is a default risk, not a renewal risk. Um, yeah. So we've re removed that renewal risk piece for, you know, some buyer who will take on the asset with, you know, fewer years left on the, on the lease yeah. remaining. Yeah. And that makes sense too, because when we're, we were looking at, let's say the investing in the medical field, medical office or something like that. And then, well, I don't know. I, I don't know where the, uh, the medical people, what, how, who wants to rent a space in this particular city and stuff like that. Or if I want to do another big uh, retail space or, uh, you know, a mall, I don't know how to contact target to uh, to go in there i don't know how to contact apple store to go in there so you need to part if same thing with industrial i mean you would need to have a partner or you would need to have as part of your resources uh access to to a group of people that are looking that would be interested in potentially leasing a space like that so that would be something that you would either have yourself or then partner up with uh, a realtor that is very familiar with that space. And then they can kind of like, they would be able to make a determination that, yeah, if you're going to do three years from now, this is what you can expect. And we shouldn't have any problem finding a tenant because yeah. I know all the, the people that want to rent the space. Kind yeah. Of yeah. And definitely a different approach there. Yeah. Because I think this is, this is something that's very important. I mean, when we, uh, when we're looking at a, implementing a specific investment strategy and one of the things that we want to look at is kind of like the resources that we have and then you have obviously time and money is the two big ones but in a in a play like this in an industrial play i mean you have to really understand the you know the players uh and then the tenants and then potentially kind of like the uh, you know the, the other uh, industrial space leaseors mm -hmm. out there so that you understand the market and all that kind of stuff and yeah if you don't have that yourself then you need to have have the right partner exactly. so that's a good way so ten thousand square feet and then uh you know could be in uh different markets and stuff like that the other way obviously is to get the syndication and to hook up with somebody that they already know the space they already have a strategy they already have a track record um, so tell us about about that. I mean, if I'm an investor and now I want to invest with uh, a, a group that's they're already familiar with that and be part of a syndication, 
how do I differentiate, you know, one syndicator from from another? How do I know that I have a solid uh, syndicator here, and um, you know, my assets are going to be relatively safe, and I'm going to have good returns? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I think the process for finding that investment partner, that syndicator partner, typically is going to be consistent regardless of the asset class, right? And you know, you can educate yourself on the on the general field. Absolute best way, the way I do it, the way I recommend my investors do it is find find investment, find other investors and just ask, ask for referrals. Ask and say, hey, what what part, what groups have you invested with? Have you been happy? Have they done what they said they, they've done? When things go, don't go to plan, do they communicate? I mean, those are factors as a sponsored team that in my opinion, outweigh any specifics of the deal you're considering. You know, that team and that team's reliability and ability to communicate both good and bad news in mm -hmm. a timely manner. I mean, that that should be your first thing that you're looking for. And then, you know, once you once you find a sponsor team that you feel generally comfortable with, you know, talk to them. Uh, they should be willing to take the time to sit down with you, answer your questions, both in on a higher level basis and on a deal specific basis. And then, you know, start small, uh, typically mm -hmm. go in, you know, what we find, I encourage our investors, regardless of their net worth to come in at the minimums for your first deal, get comfortable, go through our process, see our documents, see our, our funding process. And, you know, I say, Hey, put in some cash. We do monthly distributions, you know, hang on, get that first one or two monthly distributions in your account get that reliability, that cadence. And suddenly, I mean, you've built up a huge amount of just mutual understanding and, and trust at that point. And then at that point, you know, that sponsor team, you're really, you're investing with the team and not the deal. They should be able to produce, yeah. you know, great opportunities beyond, maybe even better as they improve as a, as a um, you know, overall skill there. And, and now you feel comfortable and you can increase correspondingly as, as you feel comfortable and as capital allows. And uh, so what is the minimum investment, the typical minimum investment that you take? Yeah, our company, most of our deals are 50,000 minimum. Um, but, you know, to that point we spoke on before, we actually will, will take a half share on the mm -hmm. first one, you know, down to 25. Again, you know, we're looking to, Get get feet wet together, uh, you know. Ultimately, build two way trust um, through that process, and uh, you know, so on the first one, we're flexible, and then fifty k is the standard beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in this space, it's it's a little bit un, it's a little bit unusual. I think people are more familiar with the multifamilies. There's a lot of those out there. Uh, even shopping malls, they they, mm -hmm. they know the they understand a little bit better. Industrial, yeah. These sales, these back is uh, it's a little bit different. It's not well. The, Overly I was going to say, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of people that have never set foot in an industrial building, right? Yeah, yeah. In a true industrial manufacturing building. I mean, you could very easily live your entire life without ever walking in a manufacturing <laughs> plant, right? And it just, yeah. it's the, the fact of the matter. Whereas, you know, multifamily and retail, you have much more direct personal exposure to those asset types. And I think that leads to maybe a, a feeling of, of greater understanding of those asset types because you see them and touch them on a more regular basis. But, you know, once you really look under the hood of the industrial side and see, hey, you know, our average tenant has been in place making whatever their specialty product is for, I mean, on average, probably 40 to 50 years. 
uh, mm -hmm. if not longer. I mean, we just had a tenant had been in place for 150 years. Wow. I mean, these guys literally were making parts for Thomas Edison's early experiments. I mean, wow. it, it's wild, right? <laughs> and you're like, okay, they're, they're making a lot of money. They're profitable. They've clearly shown the corporate maturity to be able to evolve through, I mean, hundreds yeah. of, you know, financial surprises and headwinds and recessions and, uh, you know, just every war, everything. And they've, yeah. they've ran through that. So, you know, really it's a great, you know, kind of foundational piece to say, okay, you know, we feel pretty confident that they will continue doing what they're doing. They will continue honoring their obligations to include rent. And, you know, ultimately they tend to be what I call sleep easy type of investments because they do, they just, they keep chugging on, they keep paying rent and, you know, we're able to deliver as we promise. That's good. What's the, what's the typical return? So this, obviously I put $50,000 in, I get a return every month. You do a monthly distribution. Mm -hmm. um, so what's the typical return that one would, uh, could expect in uh, one of those deals? Yeah. So during the ownership period, um, you know, most of our, our cash flow is derived from that rent. Uh, that typically will range between about seven and 10% per year. Uh, and that'll increase uh, every year or two. Uh, as those rent bumps kick in, we increase the amount of cash that comes out. Um, and so that, you know, we'll say 8% on uh, 50 grand is about 4,000 divided by 12. So you'd expect that fairly consistently through the life of the project, uh, you know, increasing a little every year. And then when we sell, typically four or five years down the road, we return that that original investment capital that was tied up in the building, return that, and then all proceeds left over, we do a, a profit split with a, a one-time profit distribution on the end. Uh, all in, when you look at that, plus the monthlies, uh, we've averaged high teens returns. Um, and so, you know, fairly competitive with other commercial real estate asset types. Oh, this is very good. And it's a good way to, uh, how does the market, the industrial market feels right now? Like, is there a big demand right now for industrial space in the United States? Yeah. You know, if you read the articles and you look at things on a macro level, um, we have, we've seen a lot of appreciation, a lot of compression in cap rates, uh, an increase in, in just real estate values mm. in that space over the last, you know, probably three, four years. Um, but when you, when you dive in a little deeper, you start seeing, you know, there, it, all things are not created equal. Right. And what we found is, is primary metros, you know, your LA's, your Dallas, Chicago, Detroit's, you know, all these primary, uh, A-class cities, you get a, a disproportionate amount of investment dollars flowing in and competing for product. You know, you have big institutional investors, you have smaller yeah. groups, you have individuals, uh, a whole bunch. And it really, it, it ends in, you know, the prices trading higher and higher um, in yeah. uh, price wise. Whereas what we found, you know, we've, we really have a specialty of kind of looking in what I call commutable secondary cities. So you might have Lincoln or Des Moines or Champaign, Illinois, you know, cities with good fundamentals and real yeah. estate either in town or just outside of town. And when you couple that type of real estate with good industrial vacancy and price fundamentals, and when you couple that with a really strong private credit tenant, um, you're still able to have, in our opinion, you know, a relatively low amount of risk coupled yeah. with outsized returns. So that that's been our focus. You know, we're very, very specific on, you know, kind of that that fringe location coupled with strong private credit. And ultimately, you know, it's it's been a successful model to date.
Well, that sounds great. Um, so yeah, so Neil, it was great speaking with you. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Any additional thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the hardest thing, you know, whether it's leaving aviation to a, a, a totally different field or really just, you know, starting to even look at a new real estate asset class, you know, my, my advice is start small and don't wait, right? Take, mm -hmm. take, a, take an amount that you can afford to lose, uh, ask for referrals, find a group that at least has treated one of your friends or colleagues well, and, and just get started. You know, put a small amount in, go through the process. And I found, I mean, your education will increase exponentially quicker through the process of doing it yourself instead of just research. And, you know, I, I encourage people to learn by doing, especially in this space, and do it with a partner or do it with a, a sponsor team. And really, that's going to allow you to leverage their experience while still going through the process yourself. Well, Neil, where can people reach you? Yeah, you, you can check out some information on our website. It's www.magcp, that's for magcapitalpartners.com, uh, or just shoot me a line. It's neil, N-E-I-L, at magcp.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, any questions you might have, or if you're interested in joining our investor group, happy to talk more. Sounds great, Neil. Uh, again, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for educating us on this uh, new space, new space for me anyway. I mean, I've seen, I've seen uh, industrial spaces before, but uh, this is a very unique way of investing and I really like it. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martel. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.